What a day. Welcome wow. to Carl Landry Record Club. Do you smell like mustard? Uh, a music podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. I smell like mustard. I'm Spike, and that's Mootloo. Hey, Mootloo, maybe you smell ref- like... You should, you should maybe tell the folks what we're talking about here, because... Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's very, no context, very random. Or not. Or not. <laughs> or not. Or not. Or not. Or not. Or not. I, I'll say this. I'm, this is what I'm going to tell. If you're listening, <laughs> this is the only context I'm going to give you. Okay, here we go. I'm going to name a bunch of food items. Mm. Okay. Mustard, uh, tomatoes, ketchup, relish, hard-boiled eggs, bologna, baked beans. My only point to you, or my only advice to you as a listener, is of these things, mustard is the most pungent of the smells and the hardest to get out of all of those things. Yeah. So just consider that moving forward. It sounds like an English breakfast, actually. Not far, <laughs> yes, not far, it does. Not far removed, actually. <laughs> it does. It does. It does. It does. But I can assure you I was not making an English breakfast. I can assure you of that. <laughs> Our intro music is from Marion Hill. That song is called I Should Let You Know. You can't find it anywhere. Welcome to the pod. We haven't recorded a new one, me and Moot, in a while, even though pods have been popping up in your feed. There's one with me and AU. There was one we recorded like six years ago or something. Yeah, when, when did we even record that last one? That was like two the, months ago. The stained one? Yeah. They, well, there was, there was just like, there's a pro, there, we had the, the live thing at the end of the summer and we wanted all the pods to have the live thing in it leading up to it. It just sort of got push back into the uh, background but but here we are here we are we we are a music appreciation pod not reviews just appreciation we we talk about a couple of albums every week sometimes a new song every week moot or i pick an album that we absolutely love we talk about it the other one the other person maybe not discovers it sometimes but sometimes goes a little bit deeper into it and then we take a album from you the listener you can, there's a million different ways. Just go to the website, carlandrewrecordclub.com or the link tree in our social media accounts or on Spotify, right below the player or the Apple podcast reviews. There's just so many different, 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 different ways you can do it. <laughs> Two albums today. Mootloo's week. So his album is Spinners from The Spinners, released in 1973, 50 years ago. Yeah, 50 years ago wild the listener album is zach bryan's self-titled album which came out this year came from bill wolf bill says see bill suggested on spotify right underneath the player there you can say bill says zach bryan self-titled debut self-titled album not debut self-titled album trust me spike this isn't a country album you will be pleasantly surprised and the new song is practice from jamila woods before we get going you have been on tour for a few weeks was it all with Amos, or was it mostly with Amos? Like? Entirely with Amos. We did a uh, two-week run, uh, ten shows. Uh, it was really great, man. It was. I've done so many tours with Amos over the years, both solo and with his band, and uh, we always have a fun time. But this was one of the best. It was just uh, when everything goes smoothly. You know how it is. You you're involved in a lot of different events and projects, and when everything is just good energy, runs smoothly, the events go well. It's just a really nice feeling at the end of it. I remember when the tour dates came out, I looked at, when I saw that you guys were touring, I said to myself, oh, maybe I'll go see those guys. And then I saw the locations and I was like, 
what the fuck is the, who did the routing on this? This is the weirdest set of dates I've ever seen. It was just, no offense to any of the loca- locations, but it looked like a bunch of off the beaten path, just sort of like not normal stops for you. Is that the case? Were these new places for you or places that you don't see a lot? Yeah, that's actually a good point because I've been doing it a long time touring. And most of the time when I look at a tour itinerary, there's maybe a city or two or town or two I haven't played. On this one, it was like almost half the, the, the markets I'd never played before, uh, but which made it interesting because these are places that otherwise I don't know I would get to. I definitely wouldn't get to on my own. And the great thing was, you know, these these shows sold really well. I mean, every show was sold mm-hmm. out or close to it, uh, most every show. And uh, there were, I think, four markets I'd never played before, Albuquerque, Oklahoma City, and then a few college towns, uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And Bloomington, and what you realize is there are music fans everywhere. Everywhere. There are great venues everywhere, and there are communities that form around music everywhere. And sometimes when you go through these places that aren't as well-traveled, there's almost a greater level of appreciation. Because, uh, you know, New York and Philly and markets like this, we, we get spoiled. We have everything here. Not every tour goes through uh, those places. And uh, I'd always wanted to go to Albuquerque, which is a really interesting uh, city. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was definitely definitely an unusual set of markets, which actually made it more interesting in some ways. I mean, I love getting to places that I haven't been to before. Well, I was going to, you mentioned it selling very well. That's one of the things that I was going to suggest is because though a lot of those markets get ignored. It sort of reminds me from a radio station standpoint for WFAN in New York, when we go to towns in Jersey or we go to Long Island, everybody's so like excited for us to be there because we're normally in that sort of like, you're, you're in your little sort of uh, sh- bubble of Manhattan or whatever. And you realize like, oh, there's a whole world out there. And for you guys touring, I'm sure there's dates that you, there's places that you usually do well at and Amos usually do, does well at, but it's sort of like this self-fulfilling prophecy of you, if you keep, just keep going to those places, you know what I mean? So hopefully it opened up places that you can visit in the future, you know, because it did so well. Yeah, there are definitely certain markets that I'm going to plan to on going back to. There were a few cities that I'd previously played with Amos, uh, like mm. Grand Rapids and Indianapolis and Kent, which is basically, you know, the Cleveland-Akron market. But but places like OKC, I mean, how, how often do people go through OKC, even though right. it's a bigger city? It's actually a really yep. nice city, too, a really cool place. Uh, it was just... It was just we had a great crew out with us. Another big thing, no one got sick. That's an accomplishment in this era of touring. Yeah. No one, six of us living on a bus, everyone got on great. No one got sick. No one got COVID. No one got the flu, which, believe me, I mean, you hear so many tours even now that get derailed by that. So, yeah, it was, uh, if anything, I was just ready to keep going for a few more weeks. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, we were having a great time. It It was awesome. I'm glad you. I'm great. You had a. Uh, I'm glad you had a, a good time. Well, why don't we start? We should start with Zach Bryan. Why don't we start with that? Then we'll go to Spinners. There's delays on the planes out of eastern Montana. Way told me you were leaving from. You've been stabbed in the back and the rest of your body. Won't you tell me where you're bleeding from? If you need a tourniquet or if you want to turn and quit, know that I'll be by your side. Bled your whole soul into things you can't control In a world you'll never satisfy I bandage up your body and your bones and your band-aids too Yeah, cool? yeah, and I, Zach Bryan didn't, now, that I think either Jason or AU brought in one of his tunes a while ago 
on one of our music Probably. clubs. Correct. I think Maybe. that's how I first Maybe. heard about him. I think. Maybe. I, it's funny. The suggestion. So he's enormous now. He's like you doing know, stadiums. He's, he's headlining stadiums. That guy. He is he's headlining amazing. Lincoln Financial Field next summer, and the the places like. New York, where he's do—he's not doing a stadium, but he's doing two nights at the Prudential Center and two nights at the Barclays Center. So, wow. you know, that's 80,000 tickets right there. And it was funny, this suggestion from Bill, he's like, I promise it's not country. I promise it's not country. I don't know why people who like Zach Bryan are so intent on saying it's not country and so convinced it's not country. I have news for you, Zach Bryan fan. It is country. Now well, there are. I might. I might agree mm, with it. That there's nuance there. It's. It's not not country. That that's what I'm gonna say. There are there are there are aspects of other music in there, and we'll talk about that for sure. But I just think it's funny that people are obsessed with saying that it's not country. If you have to say it's not country all the time, it's probably country. Is that's my my only point. If everyone's like li- listens to it for a minute and they're like, "Oh, that's country music," and you're like, "No, it's actually not." Like, well, I don't know. If it sounds like country, that kind of makes it country. He's from Oklahoma, like right. You know, that, I don't know. Well, it depends. Okay, this was a thought I had after listening. Mm-hmm. It depends on what you mean uh, by country. Modern country, as we know it, as you might hear on country radio, is pretty far removed from this. To me, this is more roots music, uh, folk, Americana. It's more in that vein. But I think I think what's interesting about Zach Bryan is he represents maybe, possibly, a paradigm shift in that the actual format of country radio might be changing because he wouldn't be doing these stadiums without having country hits, right? So you know that that could yeah. it could be almost that uh, the format of country is evolving into something else, but. If he doesn't sound anything like Kenny Chesney or some of these other artists, uh, Luke Bryan, people like that, you know? No, I mean, I suppose, you know, last time we recorded a pod, we talked about Oliver Anthony, who I think probably sits music. in a last name similar, uh, yes, Oliver Anthony Music, sits in a, a similar spot, probably. But I think, does he sound like those artists? Maybe not, but would you be so shocked to see him on a bill with those artists? I think the answer is also... Like maybe not, you know, I, I, that wouldn't be surprising to me. So forgetting about radio to me, the, the difference between your country has gone through a lot of different phases, right? It's gone through its pop phase. It's gone through, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I was going to say, uh, what's it called? Hay in the mouth overalls, like the sort of like honk-a-donk, badonk yeah, uh, stage. There's all these different stages, but To me, the biggest difference from country and whatever genre it's similar to is really just the twang of whatever country is. So, you know, the difference between a country song and a rock song sometimes is just, it's not the song at all. It's just like the sonic presentation of the song. Which Whereas like if you, a song that both you and I love, uh, what's it called? Um, From Tony Rich. Um, nobody knows. Oh, that's a great one. So that is pretty much an R&B song, but there also is a country version of that song. I pretend that I'm glad you went away. These four walls closing more every day. Now I'm dying inside. Nobody knows it but me. It's 
same exact song, probably the same exact tempo, the, the same exact melody, all of that. But you listen to it and you're like, oh, that's a country song. So to me, and we'll get, we'll, we will get into it. And I will say I resisted the Zach Bryan thing f- for a while and I am, I'm broken and I'm on the <laughs> other side of it now. And maybe it's because I heard those other things, but I think there is a twang to his presentation, which is undoubtedly country. And I think maybe also what confuses it is that other genres have come a little bit closer to country too, almost where, you know, where you have for years, you know, 20 years of it, at least now that alt country thing has sort of crept over and over and over. And I would even say, you know, we were talking about Amos Lee before the, the record, um, which record am I going to talk about the, hold on. He had an era where, Oh yeah. I mean, he has that roots music. Yes. Americana folk music influence as well. I mean, Mm -hmm. John Prine is his favorite songwriter. And would you, would you consider John Prine a country artist? I mean, he, I always thought of him as more as a folk singer, but you could also say that he fits in that general world that you're describing. For sure. Mission Bell is what I was going to say. Like Mission Bell certainly has country to it without question to me, I think. so. Absolutely. I think that's a big influence for him. Sure. In certain parts of his catalog, as far as, especially as far as the songwriting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his presentation generally is closer to the R&B soul influence, but I think in the songwriting, especially because John Prine is such a big influence, yeah, definitely. It's definitely there. So, Zach Bryan. So, this we've good good healthy discussion of Zach Bryan here. So, Zach Bryan was born in Japan actually. Actually, his father was in the Navy. He was a uh, military brat, but grew up in Aloga, Oklahoma and started writing and playing music when he was 14 years old. Joined the Navy at 17 and was an active member of the Navy for eight years, wrote songs while he was in the Navy to sort of pass the time. And then uh, as he, and we'll get up to it, but as he, his career built, he was honorably discharged from the Navy. And we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little bit. So he started, so as I mentioned, he started, you know, writing and recording when he was 14. And then about Five years ago, his friends started recording him on their phones and posting the music to YouTube. And that is sort of how he began to spread. By the way, not different at all than Oliver Anthony music in that way. So 2019, he released his first album completely on his own, without any experience, without any promotion, without any record company. They, it was called Deanne and was dedicated to his mom who had passed away. He recorded, recorded it in an Airbnb, uh, in two days. He said, I was with my buddy Alba and we were sitting in a van. He looks at me and he says, do you believe in the songs that you've written? And then he said, he took a couple of months writing the songs and recorded it in an Airbnb with mattresses on the walls. And it really, and, and by the way, just sort of figured out how to get the, the album onto YouTube or get the album onto Spotify and it started like blowing up. And then two years later, he recorded his second album called Elizabeth and that was recorded in a barn behind his house in a barn that he sort of repurposed in a place where he could record music. Two years after that, he was selling out the Grand Old Opry. That, yeah, that transition, that the that's the part to me that's extraordinary here is uh, I really enjoy the music, 
Yeah. But I've heard other art. I mean, he's an excellent songwriter. There's so much conviction in his singing, his performance. He's great. Yeah. But I've heard other artists that are more, you know, would cons- be considered niche artists who are similar, who are also mm-hmm. great, great songs, mm-hmm. who co- are more in the roots Americana world, who are playing, you know, maybe small listening rooms and s- maybe small theaters. How how does that happen? How does he become a stadium headline? That seems like such a rapid ascension to me. It's it's one of those things. Is maybe no one can pinpoint why. It's just one of those transcendent things, I guess. Well, some of it is luck, but also some of it is the un the undescribable, uncalculatable thing that makes one musician resonate and another maybe not. Some of it is luck. Some of it is the algorithm, you know, some of it is just finding its way. And I think at, at a certain point, it sort of snowballs, like when it gets to a certain point and has momentum, that momentum generates 10 times more momentum and that jet momentum generates 10 times more momentum. But it is the reason why I do not fear, though I understand the, I understand the concern, why I do not fear computers and artificial intelligence writing and recording music because there is something I believe about the human condition from one person to another that you can hear something that is honest and something that is emotionally effective that is would be r- ridiculously difficult for a computer to create. It is, it, it is the thing that separates us, right? Like whatever he is able to do and the emotion he is able to convey. Now, maybe that is me being, what's the word I'm looking for? Hopeful or, you know, ignorant to, or, or, you know, you, I'm, I'm thinking of some utopia where we can't be com- replaced in this way. But I, I think there is something that is, that you can't figure out as to why. And everybody just knows it's like, you can't describe it, you know? Um, so, he, he's selling out the Grand Old Opry and then the Navy thing happened. So he said the quote was, or this is what he wrote on Instagram when it became official that he was no longer in the United States Navy. If it was my decision, I would never get out of the world's greatest Navy. But here I am and they kindly, honorably discharged me to go play some music. Can't tell if I'm a coward or if I'm chasing a dream, but regardless, the best eight years of my life were spent serving the best country in the whole damn world. Thank you guys and I'll see you on tour. He then signed to Warner Music. In 2022, released his first major label album called American Heartbreak. It was a triple album. And <laughs> wow. it, debuted, it debuted at number five on the Billboard album chart, the highest country debut of the year. So wow. really crazy. <laughs> then he released the live album, which was recorded at Red Rocks. And by the way, Zach Bryan's music is perfect for Red Rocks, I think called All My Homies Hate Ticketmaster, which is Great title. <laughs> a, an awesome title. And I do have to give credit to my friend, John, who suggested Gang of Youths to me at the first time. And I listened to Gang of Youths and I was like, eh, it's pretty good. And it went away and then it came back. And John sent me All My Homies take, Hate Ticketmaster. And he said, by the way, he goes, it's not really country. And he sent it to me. And I listened to two songs on the live album. And I was like, eh, John. This country, and I didn't listen to it again. And then I was, but the, 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 I think the amazing thing about this podcast is it forced me to listen again 
instead of dismissing it and then not listen. And this morning, I can tell you about 6 a.m., doing the, the prep for this on the computer, I'm Googling Zach Bryan tour dates. The tide and turned today. Today is today yes, the day yes. the tide turned. Well, it turned this weekend. I was in Philly on Friday, so I had to drive back and forth, and I listened to the album twice back and forth. And it was on that drive when I was like, this motherfucker got me. He got me. He there is something me. undeniable about him. No question. Yes. It comes yeah, through. Sure. There's yep. a there's just a immediacy to how his presentation and how he communicates the songs that is is pretty special. And I can't explain it, which makes I can say what I like, but I can't say why I like it, which is I think part of the 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 amazing thing about it too. He won the New Artist of the Year for the Academy of Country in 2022. And there is a Philadelphia connection. He lived in Philly for about a year, dated a girl from Philly. If you had noticed, he was- He was, he was an Eagles on, fan, right? He was a- Yeah, but I think it's of because of that. Okay. Eagles and Phillies. I think the connection was the girlfriend that he had in Philadelphia. The So we were saying the, the other kinds of music that that is in there. Like, I think- this is probably the best example of combining country folk and also that Springsteen, Gaslight Anthem, New Jersey rock and roll sound, sort of all it in one thing. That roots rock, um, maybe even a little Tom Petty in there. And I think he, you know, each song, I th some songs you could say are more country than others, but there's something about it that pulls me back in, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I can't tell, the lyrics are good. He's a great lyric writer. The songs are not, they're not not hooky, but they're not undeniably catchy or something that, that sticks in your brain. But I can say that this album, which is 54 minutes long, which is a little long for me. I, I always prefer albums to be between 40 and 45 if I'm, if I'm not gonna get bored at any point. But for an album that doesn't have any songs that are like, boy, this is the catchiest thing I ever heard. It just, it hooks you in and does not let, let go, you know, from and the there, beginning to there, the very end. And there's a simplicity in the, in the production and the presentation that, you know, there's a lot of tunes or a number of tunes where it's, there's not a whole lot accompanying him. Yes. You know, it's very sparse. And again, that's another thing that's interesting to me is that this kind of record you wouldn't listen to, you know, the the promo people wouldn't listen to and say, oh, that's that's country radio right there. You know, that's yeah. it's, it seems far, far removed from that. But you're right in the sense that, yeah, the, the, he doesn't write like massive hooks. To me, it's the lyrics, though, that that is actually yes. what sells it to me more than anything. Well, so and and. I think that starts from the very beginning, right? So the first track on the album is, there's a song later in the album called Fear and Fridays, but there's like a poem. I'd say I've seen some beautiful days. I've walked countless coastlines, awoken to mountaintops. I've seen death and birth and kissed good lips. I don't need a music machine telling me what a good story is. And matter of fact, I've never asked nothing from nobody. I've taken my motorbike down the Pacific 101 and I have stood atop the Empire State Building with my father. I've ridden the fear, although I was afraid every single time. That it, the, the first track is Fear and Friday's parentheses poem. And there is music behind it, but he sort of talks his way through it, almost rhythm, rhythmically talks his way through it. It's not rap, you know, but he's not, he's also not just talking. There is, he is, there is music there and he's, 
there is something about it. And the, the words are just like amazing. Let's I, see, I, I got think, Let's see if you pick the same lines that I did. I'm just looking at it right now. I'm curious. Okay. So there's, there's <laughs> really, it's a, a seven, a seven line thing. I am unhinged, unworthy, and distasteful to mostly everyone I meet. However, I'm loyal to a fault to anyone I find kindness in. I do not and will not fear tomorrow because I feel as though today has been enough. And, and then the next part is I got no hate in my heart for anything, anywhere, or anyone. And I think fear and Friday has got an awful lot in common. They're both overdone and glorified and always leave you one. And... That is, I don't know if you had the same part. Well, those are, every line is, then then yeah. later he says, I've learned that every waking moment is enough and excess never leads to better things. Yeah. It only piles and piles on top of things that are already abundant. Uh, that just, I don't know, that that is, that poem, that way of starting the album to me is yep. such a strong way to do it because you get a sense of his vision, his personality, who he is without him even singing. You know, yep. he just kind of states, if you didn't know anything about him and you just heard this, it, I think it would hook you in because it's an, an intriguing way to start a record with a spoken word sort yep. of thing. That, that And then you hear this song later in a more musical context and it hits differently. But somehow yep. starting it this way, just the spoken thing is just powerful. And the the line in there, I almost got choked up reading it, but I do not and will not fear tomorrow because I feel as though today has been enough, is, is similar to the line that you're talking about. He's saying sort of the, the same thing, the, the, and I, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm feeling this way talking about it. Like I, I tell my wife this a lot. I, it is so easy to get distracted by everything and not find you know, not allow yourself to find the beauty and the love in the regular things that you have. And there are, our lives, you know, there are so many problems and there are so many issues and there's so much pain, but man, there's so much, we're so lucky, you know, there's so much glory and so much love in everything that we, we have. And uh, I, I think sometimes, you know, there are some musicians that I like because I like their lyrics and some musicians I don't really care about the lyrics, but when somebody can write something in a way that you feel that you've never been able to express, there's the authors I like best. I always say that about Chuck Klosterman, that he writes in a way that I would write if I could write well. And, and I think someone being able to take the way that you tr want to express your feelings, but do it in a way that is artful like this is, is so meaningful. Yeah, and there's the there's the idea that it's all been said before in some shape or form. It's like, how are you saying it? How are you communicating it? And the best lyrics often do that. We've discussed that with other artists, too. It's like, I've never heard this idea stated in exactly this way. Yep. And I think that's the case with these lyrics, which makes them so powerful, is yep. that... And, and there's almost a a cathartic element to it where you hear a lyric like that and you're like, hey, you know what? Maybe I should reflect on my my own situation in, in some way. I should internalize this in a good way. Uh, yes, If, if a lyric sure. makes you feel that way, then the songwriter has accomplished something pretty incredible because a lot of lyrics aren't able to do that. For Even, sure. You know, they might connect with you. They might uh, create an image for you or tell you a story, but a lyric that ex actually makes you reflect on your own experience in some way, that's, those are the hardest lyrics to write and they're the ones that will stay with you. I think the very next song, Overtime, which starts with a, a lick from, you know, a, a, a 
a Hendrix like sort of national anthem version and then goes into the song is probably is a I think maybe like the biggest song on the album. Hey the darling won't you love me down? I'm fifty one miles out in interstate town. I just decided I ain't keeping quiet and I'm free. I lost my family to a bad disease. I got a mean mean gene in my family tree. Most of the album, I don't think, is as big. You know, you, as you mentioned, most of the album is pretty sparse in terms of production. This one's pretty big, but I also think this song is is the best example of the country of, of the combo of country and that Springsteen like thing. And not this isn't to insult Springsteen, but the and I I imagine that some of the reason that people like Springsteen is he sings about things in, in probably a similar way. I just don't buy it when Springsteen does it. And I am buying it when Zach Bryan does it. I don't know why, you know, there's nothing, I, I, I don't know that one is more real than the other, but, but again, there's more lyrics in it. Like, um, they said, as a wannabe cowboy from a cutthroat town with tattooed skin and nobody around your songs sound the same. You'll never make a name for yourself, but I've been scraping by my whole damn life. Man. I like that, man. That is good. That's good that is shit. really good. Really good. Yes. <laughs> and then um, just two other quick notes. First of all, I, I remember everything with Casey Musgraves is a monster. Time, you only smile like that when you're drinking. I wish I didn't, but I do remember every moment on the nights with you. You're drinking everything. To ease your mind But when the hell are you gonna ease mine? I love male-female back and forth duet songs. I just love them and it it Casey Musgraves is a great person to do it with. But the song I really want to talk about was East Side of Sorrow. And I lost you in a wedding room after sleeping there for a week or two. Doctor said he did all he could. You were the last thing I had that was good. So I walked miles on the Tulsa streets. Lights started beaming in from the east. 6 a.m. and fucked up again. Asking God where the Which is a song just about loss and losing people. And um, it is, it's a sort of a, heartbreaking song in a lot of different ways, but it, I think, and it's sort of catchy. It's, I think it's one of the catchiest songs on the album. I think it's one of the best hooks on the album, but I really love that one too. Yeah. There's so many good ones. Uh, one other tune that stood out to me was one with Warren Treaty, uh, mm-hmm. the Hey Driver. So take me down the road. That's a little bit windy to a place. They still put sugar in their eyes. Where the women are fine and the love is fair. Yeah, driver, you can drive me off anywhere. Hey, driver, pull on over. I'm in a fight with God. It's There's yeah. something about that recording that just you hear they're having so much fun when they recorded it. You know, yep. you just get the feel of musicians in a room throwing down, not overthinking it. I think the other part of his appeal is that none of this sounds labored, you know? Yeah. There are some records that, and there are some great records that you hear the work in it. 
you know, because yep. it's more stylized. There's more to it. This just feels like he goes in and, I mean, maybe he does a lot of takes. I don't know. But it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like he captures a moment. And that's that energy on the on the song with Warren Treaty. The way they harmonize, it's loose, but it just feels good. And, yep. and it doesn't seem overthought, overwrought. And then there was one other tune... Uh, which one was that? It was overthought and overwrought, and I, I yeah. feel like that's a line that's from a the line. <laughs> from uh, from the first from the first from the poem. It could. It definitely feels like an extension. So, I was uh, overthought and overwrought, overwrought and recording a podcast. Yeah, yeah that's like hi, hi man. Yeah. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was some good lyrics right there. Yeah. I don't know. The it's, Southern, is it weird to, for a Yankee to do Southern accent? It's fun sometimes. Yeah, so. whatever. It's okay. It's, if he can come up and cheer for the Eagles, we can do an accent. We can do an accent, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the fair's fair. Oh, you it's, know? it's all it's, good. It's uh, all good, yeah. Summertime's close. That's another one that, mm -hmm. that stood out to me. Because you're the fire of Carolina and Oklahoma, too. The stars of St. Louis ain't burning bright as you. You're the waves crashing down on the eastern coast And the day's cooling off and the summertime's close I lost faith in the world a long time I just love the simple, sparse presentation on that. And when I hear that song, he he seems firmly rooted in that storytelling tradition of, of folk yeah. music. And he has that ability lyrically that we talked about with a lot of other writers that we admire that he, he can paint a picture for you. You know, he can show it and not tell it. There's some lines on that one. You're the fire of Carolina and Oklahoma too. And the stars in St. Louis ain't burning bright as you. You're the waves crashing down on eastern coast when the day's cooling off and summertime's closed. I mean, just, there is a poetry to how he yeah. puts these things together. And to me, I love the emotion in his performance and the songs are well written, but it's the lyrics to me that uh, really yeah. put him over the top. Those are, that's, those are the things that I walked away thinking about some of the things yeah. you hear him say. And all the songs feel lived in. You feel like when you hear these songs, there's something direct from his experience that's being communicated. I think that's part of his appeal, why it seems so undeniable. People can, can't even consciously necessarily recognize why that is, why that moves them, but it's just there. It's almost an unspoken thing. Your, your comment about the songs feeling lived in is... Look, not every underproduced album or not every over-the-top produced album is going to seem that way, but it does see it. It does feel like a, an album has to be that to to be that. But you're right; the songs feel like not overwritten and not overthought about and not over. But also, everything feels like it's been done with care. Like almost a song that he's been he's been all of his the the songs I've been listening to are songs that he has been waiting to write. And maybe that's why they feel lived in because they are about his experience and his experience is lived in. Absolutely. And you just feel like you, you get an understanding of who he is and yep. what he's about from this album. And there is a real strong imposition of personality in all the songs that comes through. And that's also not an easy thing to do. There are plenty of bands and artists you listen to that you might enjoy the music, you might even enjoy the lyrics, but you don't necessarily get a sense of who they are. Uh, yep. from listening to that record. But with him, it's all right there. Yep. Uh, great album, great suggestion. Bill, I'm sorry, it sort of is country, but... It's all the, the above. Ritz, Heartland, yeah, yeah. Roots, Americana, yeah. folk. It's all that. It's everything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, you want to move to the spinners? When I was 17, 
I ran away from home and from everything I had ever known. I was sick and tired, living in a town filled with narrow minds and hate. They used to laugh at me. Their children called me names. I would run. Yes. Now, are you familiar with or a fan of the Spinners? Uh, familiar with. Familiar with the band The Spinners and familiar with, I think, three songs on this album that I think probably a lot of people would be familiar with, even if they weren't familiar with the name of the band The Spinners. Yeah, know? the classics, you know, songs that have become staples of classic hits radio, not just, you know, emerged out of the R&B and soul world, but songs that have crossed over into classic hits pop radio. There's definitely a few yeah. of those on here. But The Spinners, okay, they have a 70-year career, which is when you... Think about Woo. this band. Yeah, it's not bad. Pretty not good. Bad. And they're still going, albeit with none of the original members. But several of the original members were performing with the band until very recently, quite recently. Yeah. And when you think about that, just that time span, they had so many different chapters and phases of their career. But they will always be, in my opinion, most closely identified with the sound of Philadelphia. Even though they're from Detroit, the sound of Philadelphia, they are one of the quintessential Philly soul groups and their greatest work creatively commercially happened in Philadelphia at Sigma Sound with Tom Bell, the producer of this record, with all those incredible musicians and arrangers. And, uh, you know, we could do 10 episodes about the sound of Philadelphia and all the bands and songs and and we could still just be scratching the surface. It's such a deep catalog. But Mm -hmm. I would say if you are new to the Philly Sound and some of these groups that Again, you're going to recognize songs when you hear these records. You may not know the group. You may not even right. know about the Philly sound, but you're going to recognize a few of these songs. For sure. And it's tough to just pick an album or two. But if you had to like put together a top five of records to say that this record exemplifies the sound of Philadelphia at its peak, you could definitely put this album on, the, on that list. So mm-hmm. uh, going back, you know, a little background. Their vocal group formed in Ferndale, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit in 1954. And the original lineup of the Spinners was Henry Fambrow, who's the baritone vocalist, who kept performing up until this year with the group, from 1954. (laughs) Up until 2023. Up until 2023. Amazing. Unreal. Purvis Jackson was the bass vocalist, continued performing up until 2008, when he sadly passed away. Uh, Billy Henderson, the tenor baritone vocalist, continued performing up until 2004, sadly passed away a few years later, but... Look at the run. I mean, all these guys had in this group. It's just amazing. There were a few members that were only there briefly early on. Uh, C.P. Spencer, just for a few years in the mid-50s, and James Edward, just for that initial year. Probably the most recognizable voice of the Spinners is Bobby Smith, who sang lead on many of these hits. Uh, Felipe Wynn sang on some of them, but I think when you think of the lead vocal of the Spinners, you'll most, more than often not, you'll identify it as Bobby Smith. He was with the group until 2013 when he passed away. I mean, so look at the run these guys had. Decades and decades of performing, so many different phases. Now, they they first started achieving some chart success in the early 60s. Their first single was a song called That's What Girls Are Made For. It was recorded for Harvey Fuqua's Tri-Fi Records. And Harvey Fuqua was a legend in his own right, vocalist, songwriter, producer, label owner. He was also the brother-in-law of Barry Gordy. Motown Records. Oh, wow. And in 1963, 
Barry Gordy bought out Tri-Fi Records and their entire roster. So basically, the Spinners in the 60s were a Motown band. However, they did not have the success at Motown that many of their contemporaries had. And it's an interesting thing to read about this. This wasn't something I was aware of, because I felt I knew a lot about this band. But in the mid-late 60s, their commercial success was very limited. They really didn't chart anything during that time. But... You know, they still stayed a part of the collective, the enterprise of Motown. So they would work as, some of them would work as road managers. Some of the members of this group did work behind the scenes for other artists, which is actually a really cool thing. I mean, it's great as an artist to learn those things, but in the context of their career at that time, it almost sounded like a demotion. And this despite the fact that they were revered in the world of R&B and soul music. Their 1964 Apollo appearance, which was their first time there, is legendary. That was the one that really cemented them, I think, for a wider audience as being one of the great vocal groups. But somehow or another, they couldn't find their stride at Motown during a time when there were a lot of hits coming out of Motown, but they were sort of on the periphery. Sometimes you got to find the right situation and the right people, and they didn't find that till later. Now, in 1960, after a five-year absence on the charts, they finally charted another tune. It's a song called It's a Shame that was Produced by Stevie Wonder and co-written by Stevie Wonder and Sarita Wright. It's a shame the way you mess around with the man. It's a shame the way you hurt me. It's a shame the way you mess around with the man. I'm sitting all alone by the telephone waiting for your call when you don't call. Now, right around the same time, they released just their second full length, because you got to remember, in this, they, they were releasing records from the early 60s, and even a little further back than that, they had their first hit in the early 60s, but it was definitely a single-centric era, so they really only had two albums when they were with Motown. The second wow. one was a song uh, record in 1970 that came out called Second Time Around. They were friends with Aretha Franklin, and at the time, she told them, like, look, listen, you guys, you guys should come over to Atlantic Records. That this was her suggestion. They eventually made that move. Now, the only drawback of that was they just had a hit with Stevie Wonder, and apparently they were working on a record that Stevie was producing for them uh, that, because of the label changeover, just went unfinished and sat on the shelf, and to this day, who knows what happened to it. Which, to me, is like, where's that record? You know? Yeah. <laughs> where are those it's gotta songs? It's got to be somewhere, right? Cause, yeah, because Stevie Wonder was about to hit this extraordinary phase of his career. I mean... One amazing album after another through the better part of the 70s. But here he was producing another legendary group. Like, I wasn't even aware that this was the case, but it's got to be somewhere. So maybe it'll still emerge at some point. Now, when they signed to Atlantic, they were a group that was highly respected, but had only achieved modest commercial success. But that was all about to change when they connected with Tom Bell. Now, you know, the Philly sound, they're... When you think of the sound of Philadelphia, there's so many individuals that contributed to that. So many great musicians. MFSB, which was essentially the core collective of session musicians, that was a collection of over 30 musicians who played on all these records. Uh, You had string arrangers, you had different producers, great songwriters, but probably the four most seminal figures in the history of the sound of Philadelphia, the people that, the names that come up right away that had the biggest reach and the biggest influence all this were Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff, Tom Bell, and Joe Tarzia. Joe Tarzia started Sigma Sound Studios. And Tom Bell really, they all were brilliant 
writers and producers, and they all did incredible work. But Tom Bell, I, th- I think some people would say, was the true musical genius of that mix. He was a child prodigy. He was classically trained. And he's someone who, when you listen to this record, even more when you listen to Stylistics and the Delphonics, we should do one of their records too. You know, he brought this, the, you know, some of the sensibility of classical music, of counterpoint, harmony, dynamics in the strings to R&B and soul music that elevated in a way that, to me, has still never been matched. And Tom Bell sadly passed away late last year, same with Joe Tarzia, but it was with the Spinners connecting with uh, Tom Bell that they really hit their stride. And that this record kicked off a run of five gold records in a row, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. I mean, yeah. they just they just hit their stride and they never looked back. So basically, they signed this record, they put out four, five gold records. When you listen to that overall body of work, it's some of the greatest uh, music recorded during that era of an incredible era of the sound of Philadelphia. Of course, like anything, all good things tend to come to an end. Toward the end of the decade, there started being some internal uh, conflicts, and eventually with their parting of ways with Tom Bell, that kind of marked the end of their commercial run. But their career has continued on. They're one of the quintessential Philly soul groups. And again, when you think of their music, as much as any band, they tapped into that collective of players, of writers, of arrangers in a way that... It's like you could look and listen to all their records from about this time up until, until the end of the 70s and say, man, if you want a handbook of Philly soul music, songs, performances, just what defines that sound, you could just look right at the Spinners, along with all the other great groups, the OJs, Harold Mellon, the Blue Notes, goes on and on. But the Spinners, I think, had a singular place in all that. After the chart career ended, they continued touring, like I said, up until this very day. Many of the members were still there until recently. Uh, there's still a big draw, even without any original members on the oldies nostalgia circuit, because people love that music. And most of what is still drawing people are these songs and records that came out during the 70s, starting with this one. In 2023, Harvey Fanbrow finally uh, retired. And uh, sorry, Henry Fanbrow finally retired. And after 70 years as a member, he was the last sole remaining original <laughs> member. Um, and in May of this year, May 3, two, uh, 2023, after three previous nominations, they finally got inducted into the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which should have happened sooner, in my opinion, but it happened with the original classic lineup. Now, looking more specifically at this record, again, this was the beginning of something monumental, an incredible run of hits and albums, and just a creative surge, you know, started with this. So I'm going to go through some of the album personnel, because like I was saying, this album spotlights some of the legendary musicians that played on a lot of other records. So the lineup for the Spinners at this time on this album were Billy Henderson, Bobby Smith, Felipe Wynn, who was sort of the key uh, co-lead vocalist, along with uh, Bobby Smith, Henry Fambrow, and Purvis Jackson. Now going through the credits, on guitars you had Roland Chambers, Norman Harris, and Bobby Eli. And I'm just going to share something about Bobby Eli because I got to know Bobby Eli a little bit. I mm, met him a how? few. Uh, well, I met him through T Bone Walk, who uh, who produced my yep. album for Manhattan Records and EMI. Yeah, and uh, I met him right around the time I first met T Bone. Actually, it was right around the time I first met Daryl Hall and John Oates too. They were performing. I think that was for Fourth of July down on the Parkway, and T Bone invited me to come out. We were just getting to know each other. We we're going to start working on this album together, and Bobby was there, and he introduced me to Bobby. And then I ran into Bobby a few other times, but something really special happened. Uh, I opened some solo shows at different points in time for John Oates. 
at one of those shows, John had this idea that I should sing this song, Love Won't Let Me Wait, with him. Because I would always go up and guest with him on his solo gigs. Sometimes on his solo gigs, when I would open up, I would sing on like three, four different tunes with him. But he had an idea that I should cover this tune that I wasn't familiar with, a song called Love Won't Let Me Wait. Uh, originally released by Major Harris. It was a huge, huge hit. And, I mean, John was right on the money. As soon as he played me this song, I was like, oh, man, this is, <laughs> this is right in my wheelhouse. So I learned it. We played a version of it with him and his band. And there was a video. Actually, I think that show he was doing was taped by uh, WHYY. It was the Lavoie Theater down in South Jersey. And okay. uh, they taped it. I think there was like a fan video of it, but there was a HYY video of it. And I shared this online and Bobby saw it. Now, Bobby is the one who produced the original for Major Harris and co-wrote the song. And this was like one of those moments where like, wow, this is, you know, you just get chills because he saw John and I's version and he wrote me a message. He said, oh man, the way you and John put that together, I love it. You did such a beautiful rendition of my tune and it, it wow. was just such a flattering message to get from him. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, for uh, sure. And he sadly passed away not too long ago either. But, you know, I just, uh, moments like that are like, you know, with all the nonsense you deal with the, in the industry and everything, like moments like that are validating in a way, you know. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah, that was something. He was an incredible guy. One of the great session players, not just session player, but also writer, producer, had a huge hand. Now, when you listen through, Tom, you go through the list a little more, Tom Bell on piano, uh, Ronnie Baker on bass guitar, Don Ronaldo, who was a great string arranger, was involved in this record as well, Earl Young on the drums, Vince Montana, great name on Vibes and Marimbas, then the list goes on and on. If you look at... <laughs> Vince it, Montana is such a good what name. What a great name. And Vibes yeah. and Marimba, he plays Vibes, which I love the Vibes, great instrument. Honestly, Vince Montana is like the sort of name you would use at a hotel so nobody can tell that you're <laughs> staying there, like you're a pseudonym. Oh, I'm Vince Montana. Yeah, I oh, love man, it. I so love good. it. Yeah. It just has yeah. a ring. But so many yep. incredible musicians represented on this album. That again, we're part of the mother, father, sister, brother collective, which was 30 plus musicians. And if you ever walk, have you ever been to Sigma Sound? Did you ever go there down on, no. on 12th Street near the convention center? No. I mean, it's basically, you know, Joe Tarzia sold it years ago. I, I also got to meet Joe Tarzia and do a little work with him at a point in time, uh, which was amazing too, because he started that studio. When you think of the records that were made there, it's yeah. incredible when you walk by the place. I think there's like a little placard there. I don't even know what's happening with the studio anymore. But so much incredible music was recorded right there, right here in Philly. You know, it gives you a sense of pride when you think of all the incredible things that came out of there. But these collective of musicians at Sigma, they were basically the in-house session musicians. Members of the Philadelphia Orchestra played on a lot of these records. So you had this synergy between, you know, session players who were playing on these great soul records and classical musicians. It was just an amazing time. Like, I would have... If I could go back in time, like do if Doc Brown came over and said, "Hey, yeah, I'm gonna take you back in time," I'd say, "Doc, can you take me to like 1972? I'd like to, <laughs> I'd like to go to the Sigma Sound and see what's going on there." You know, I'm glad that you have that decided in case that you do run into that uh, situation. You I'm never glad know. That you know where you would go. Yeah, you, you might as well be prepared. You might as well be prepared for the sure. Flux capacitor does amazing things. and <laughs> It does. You know, so if I could go back, that's what I would want to, that's what I want to see. But uh, a few highlights of this record, and I'm curious to hear what you think of it, because I know you recognize a few of the tunes, but I'm going to go with the obvious ones, uh, because yeah. they are staples of the Philly sound. I'll be around all time Philly so yeah. I'm assuming you heard that one before.
Yeah, the thing that I, I noticed about it for the first time while I was listening to it, because I would have guessed that the song, I never knew what the song was called, and the song's called, I, I would have guessed it was called I'll Be There, because they, they say right. that the most times. But it is so perfect the way that when they say I'll be around resolves that entire chorus, like the way that it, uh, it, it's such, I don't know the musical, like what they're doing, but it is such a perfect end to the chorus. It just, it encapsulates the whole thing and ends the chorus in such a, a beautiful way. And I had never paid attention to it before. And it was only because I saw the title of it and I thought about the chorus in a different way than I had thought about it before. Yeah, that I love that. I love that take because it's sort of, I guess you could say it's the tagline at the end of the hook. I, there's a number of yeah. ways to refer to it. It's yep. the catch line because, yeah, I'll be there, I'll be there. You hear that building, building, yep. but you need that last line. And the yep. melody tweak there, that's what completes the chorus. That's the big payoff at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. uh, it's just such a, that was a song that was written by Tom Bell and Phil Hurt. Great lead vocal on that one from Bobby Smith. And as always, just fantastic background vocals. What I love about the background vocals on this song and throughout is, and you hear this on so many great Philly records, the interaction between the lead and the backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And the way the lead is freed up, it can state the, you know, he can state the melody, but it's almost like the backgrounds at times can state the hook and it gives the lead vocalist a, a space to kind of stretch out and take some chances and riff a little bit. Not as much on this one, but there's one other tune that I'll mention where it's, is, that's even more the case. And I like the sentiment of this song. It's a song about maintaining a connection and a sense of dedication to someone even after you break up, even after a relationship mm -hmm. falls apart. You know, whenever you call me, I'll be there. You know? I'll be there. You know, yeah. it's like a, just that's something that not every relationship ends that way, but there are relationships where it maybe falls apart, but there's still some connection and some sense of, you know, uh, camaraderie there that remains. So it's kind of about that. I love that from the lyrical standpoint. And again, just spotlights some of the great session work. Just to break down the track a little bit, I love the interplay between the congas and the drums because you really kind of hear the congas up front more mm -hmm. than you hear the more than you hear the drums initially. But then the dynamic between the two just creates this polyrhythm that's amazing. Another big part of this track that's a huge, huge, huge part of the Philly sound is the octave guitar lines. You hear it at the beginning. You hear it throughout. That was such a huge part of the Philly sound is playing. Now, I imagine you play guitar, so I imagine you've played octaves mm -hmm. uh, in different contexts. But when you hear it in the context of Philly, the Philly sound, those parts would always serve as both melody and rhythm. And you hear it on so many records, including this one. And then just the keyboards and the bass are the propulsion of the song. Like when you kind of break this thing down, uh, you know, again, if Doc Brown could take me back, I would love to just watch what's happening. <laughs> what was happening in the studio? How did they record this? How, were they all, were they partitioned off? Were they all in the room together? Like, I would just love to know how they got this sound, you know? <laughs> I feel like you think Doc Brown listens to this podcast and you're trying to he might. try to drop hints. Yeah, He might. Doc, if you're yeah. listening, you know, flux capacitate me all the way back to 1972. <laughs> I think I've been watching Back to the Future lately. That's maybe what I'm thinking about. Yeah, like, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> also, this song showcases Tom Bell's excellence as a producer, arranger, his ability to craft productions that are just so dynamic. There's a lot going on musically in this, right? But it never feels like any one instrument steps on another instrument. And it never feels like the instruments ever step on the vocals. 
And when yeah. you have that much happening, that's one of the, that's part of the greatness of the Philly sound because there would be a lot happening. There would be some records where you'd have three guys playing guitar all at once. You'd have one guy just hitting a, a rhythm part. You'd have another guy doing a, a, another little like solo line almost, but not a solo, but just a part. And then you'd have the guy playing the octaves. And it just, there would be so much going on, but the genius of it was nothing was ever in the way of anything else. And it never sounded overproduced in that way. And Tom Bell was amazing at doing that. One of the tune off spotlight is uh, Could It Be I'm Falling in Love? another classic was that one you recognize i imagine um yes i'm just looking at the track list yes it's the last track the of the last album, track right? exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly yes. another great uh, uh vocal from bobby smith but towards the end felipe win kind of steps up and kind of takes the outro and riffs around this is the one i was talking about where the dynamic between the backgrounds and the lead is so special because really on this one the backgrounds take the hook they're stating the hook and it gives Bobby Smith room to kind of react to that, to respond to it. It's like a call and response kind of thing. Another beautiful arrangement. To me, one of the most satisfying intros I've ever heard on any song. Not just the Philly sound, but, you know, one thing, another staple, because there were all these staple elements of what made the Philly sound what it was. A lot of times you hear this on some of the stylistic songs and Delphonic songs in particular, again, the all Tom Bell productions. You would hear the, the instrumentals the instrumentalist would state the hook first, you know, uh, like that happens on the song Did, "Didn't I Blow Your Mind" by the Delphonics. That's one great example, and you hear that here. the The band isn't just playing the rhythm and coming in; they're actually stating the hook it, within the instrumental track. So you kind of get that melody in your head, and then when it comes to the lead, and you hear that again in the lead vocalist, it's almost like a bigger payoff because that hook is already kind of in your head. And this one, the strings build up until Bobby Smith comes in, and then they clear out of the way. And then it just, the song just builds and builds and builds. To me, it's just a, you know, I could go on and on about this. And uh, is this the first, this can't be the first Philly record I've picked. Is it? No. We've been doing this for over two years. It can't be. I It might, but it's like somehow we haven't gotten to it. But now I'm going to have to pick more. uh, Yeah. Because there's other albums we should should bring into the fold. I mean, uh, but... Yeah, to me, this is a top five. I mean, if you had to just, if you needed to introduce someone to the sound of Philadelphia, this is as good a place to start as any. The a couple of things that I noticed that that when listening to it, first of all, there are a lot of rock records that after 40 years, the songs hold up, but I don't always feel like the production does. You know, there are a lot of rock records from the 70s and 80s that sound pretty thin that if they were remade today. It's amazing this album came out in 1973 and it sounds like as big and glossy as it does 50 years later. Isn't it crazy? Amazing. It really is amazing, which is why I would want to be a fly on the wall to see like what were they, how were these records made, you know? Well, and on the first two songs, and it made me think of, you're going to, I think it's wild that I'm bringing it to this, but I started thinking about the Silverchair album, Diorama, and I the see use that. of no, the sense. use of like or, strings and like orchestral sounds in it. And they, it, 
like if I had thought of these songs without hearing them again, I would have never thought that it was like a, a signature part of the recording. Two songs of the album just can't get you out of my mind and you and me baby have such big sort of beautiful string arrangements in there take my sunshine take my happiness let's run through this land we won't care and there won't be any company we'll share which I think are, are part of why it holds up from a production standpoint, but it's so enormous and like glossy that I, I didn't think of when I thought of these songs, you know, previously. I actually don't think it's a leap to bring up diorama, even though, you know, it's a different, it's a different style. Like the songs, yeah. the, you know, the general co- uh, genre is different. But wasn't Van Dyke Parks involved in that record, if I'm not mistaken? He was, he was. Yeah, yeah. so when you think of Van Dyke Parks... He's someone like him, the sensibility is not too far removed from someone like Tom Bell in the sense that they approach pop music in a way that was orchestral. Like, and that's the thing you're talking yeah. about. It's a, to bring that, you know, elements of classical music. Cause I remember hearing an interview with Kenny Gamble and he was talking about what made the Philly sound what it was. He's like, he's like, we had everything in there. We had, we had a little bit of rock in there. We had blues in there. We had soul music. We had gospel. And he, I remember he said classical. We had classical huh. music in there. They had members of the Philadelphia Orchestra playing on these records. But then you had someone like Tom Bell, who, like Van Dyke Parks, would look at a production from that vantage point. And that's why I think that's why I like Diorama so much, because it has that, sonically, that same kind of thing that the Philly sound has in that, you know... Nothing feels overproduced. That's the thing. How do you how do you put all these musical sections? You have backgrounds, strings. How do you make that all work together? That's very difficult to do, and only certain producers and arrangers can do it. And that's what I think is uh, amazing about it. Van Dyke Parks is actually the guy that gave Daniel Johns the nickname Young Modern, which ended up being the name of the final Silver Chair album. Um, and they, he, Van Dyke Park did some strings on, on that final album as well. I mean, so. to me, that's still the best thing I've heard from Daniel Johns. I think that was literally the first record we did, right? Yes, yes, Diorama. Yep, and I mean, absolutely. I like some of, I, I like a lot of other uh, Silver Chair tracks and records, and I've even liked some of his solo stuff. But I, I feel like that record, he was at like a creative peak, and maybe it was just where he was at. Maybe Van Dyke Parks had something to do with that. I don't know. It's just like the Spinners, you know, they couldn't find their place with Motown, but here they come to Philly and they work with Tom Bell and suddenly they came into their own. Sometimes it's just like, who's on the other side of the of the board, you know, when you're cutting? The other song that made me think of other things, I Could Never Repay Your Love, which is a mm. ballad. It just, I started thinking about through every genre, 
from rock to country to folk to soul. A ballad is a ballad is a ballad is a ballad. Mm-hmm. Like there, <laughs> it, is, it is the one thing that is just sort of like forgetting about what genre it is. A ballad is still a ballad. And I love ballads, man. I just love mm. ballads. It started at an early age, started, you know, at, at the 11 or 12 years old with the the power version of it with, <laughs> with the hair bands. But I just love ballads. I think ballads are great and it's a beautiful one. I could never pay to love this beautiful you ballad. Me I could never repay Yeah, and another huge part of the Philly sound is those, you know, uh, those classic ballads. But I was, you made me think of something. Across every genre, is could we say that the ballad is the one constant that is always going to win over that audience of that particular genre? I mean, because you hear it. It always ends in, up being the favorite, right? I mean. Yeah, the, no matter what yeah, the context. Yeah. Well, it could be a big pop band. It could be a metal band. It could yep. be the Spinners. It could be. Yep. Uh, I don't know. Just take it. It could be an it, look. Indie rock. Do indie rock bands do ballads? I think they do. I mean, they must, right? Yeah. I'm trying to think. Like <laughs> That's a weird thought rock. that just came into my mind. It's like because we've yeah. t- discussed some indie rock. Do they do ballads like that? Uh, I, I'm not sure. Maybe. What's an I indie? Oh, band? did I? Did I tell you by the way? <laughs> that, that, this is gonna. This is way off track. <laughs> but we were talking about. I think the last one we recorded, we did the War on Drugs album. Yeah, um, which is a great uh, record. I've kind of lived uh, with yes. that some more. I mean, just a beautiful, beautiful album. And I hope he's okay with me saying this, but the and I Dave Hartley uh, texted me and told me that he enjoyed Dave Hartley from War on Drugs. Texted me and told me that he enjoyed the discussion of it. Oh, right on, and, right on. And he said we had at the very end. I mentioned that there was something sonically that sounded to me like the Def Leppard's hysteria. And he mentioned that the guitar player in War on Drugs is a huge Def Leppard fan. Oh, there you go. And, would, <laughs> and, and actually wrote the, the line of the song that I was talking about was written by him. The lick was written by him. And I thought that was like, I thought I was so proud. I was like, Ooh, <laughs> what a weird reference that very few people would even notice. And the fact that I, I noticed that I was super proud. Your of, musical you know? uh, subconscious just knew. It just yeah, I knew. Think is, is, it Robbie? It, you know? is it, is it Robbie Bennett? I yeah, think it's Robbie Bennett. Uh, I know yeah. Robbie from, he used to be in a band called Pepper's Ghost. Oh, uh, he was in Pepper's Ghost? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So Pepper's Ghost was around when I was YSP days, so early 2000s, right? Yep. Is that Yeah, Pepper's? it was the yeah. two brothers, but I mean, Robbie is just an incredible musician. He really is just uh, chops, but just tasteful. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the one thing about the war on drugs, man, the, the level of musicianship in that band with uh, yeah. with everyone that's part, Charlie, Robbie, Dave, just everyone in that group, uh, I think that's what elevates them is... Uh, just having like technical skill, but then also having the ability to play with nuance and feel and dynamic. Like when I, when I watch Charlie play, he's one of those kind of musicians and everyone in the group is like that. Uh, you know, so it's just, I think that was, I've been living with that record and just, it's one of those, I think you said this about that album, right? 
it's a grower. It's I, a grower. I, didn't, I thought it was good at first, but it, it the I, I noticed that I started liking it when I started thinking about it without ever listening to it. Yeah. And I hadn't listened to it in weeks. And all of a sudden, one of the songs was like in my brain. And I was like, ooh, yeah. I get it now. Like, I really get it. It's one know? of those albums that every time you listen, you feel like you hear something new about it. Something yeah, you missed yeah. the last time. Some new little detail in the production or something that catches you but yeah that that's it's definitely i like that term it's a grower it's a it just gets better and better and like the more you live with it the, the more it's like you, you start thinking about it more i i sort of think at an hour and two minutes that we should push the new song onto the next let's episode. hold practice for next week i want to make sure that it's in a part of the pod that people can get to or whatever yeah we got is... to because we got it because it's she's one of my favorite artists and okay and it's an iverson basketball i was gonna say yeah it's a ricky crossover yeah we need we need sure. time we need time for that one so <laughs> all right we will talk to you next time thank you for listening remember you can suggest an album in any of the ways that suggested at the top of the pod uh that's it talk to you next time stay free my goose